So now for today's program, we are privileged to have one of the nation's foremost authorities in the American Civil War with us today. Dr. Peter Carmichael earned his PhD under Gary Gallagher at Penn State before beginning his academic career at West Carolina University in 1997. He went on to teach at the University of North Carolina, Greensboro, and West Virginia University before landing probably in one of the finest places you can land as a Civil War historian at Gettysburg College as the Robert C. Fleur Professor of Civil War Studies and Director of the Civil War Institute at Gettysburg College, where he's been since 2010. Peter also serves as co-editor of Civil War America series from the University of North Carolina Press. He is no stranger to the Historical Society, where he has conducted a lot of research and spoken a number of times before. He's author of numerous scholarly and popular articles and several books, including Lee's Young Artillerist, William R.J. Pegram, The Last Generation, Young Virginians in Peace, War, and Reunion, and most recently, The War for the Common Soldier, how men thought, fought, and survived in Civil War armies. Copies of which are available at our museum shop, and I'm sure Pete would be happy to sign them for you after today's lecture. So please give a warm welcome to Peter Carmichael. Okay, sorry, <laughs> need to get settled. Uh, Andy, thank you so much uh, for that kind introduction. Um, coming back here is a place that makes me nostalgic. It makes me nostalgic because in the summer of 1985, I was a seasonal historian at Appomattox Courthouse. I had to play a Union soldier, Bobby Fields, nine to five every day, entire summer. <laughs> pretending that it was 1865. It was a great experience, of course. And um, Ron Wilson, the former chief historian there, knew that I was interested in Willie Pegram, as you all know, the Pegram family of Richmond. And he said, why don't you come to then the Virginia Historical Society? And uh, I'm getting to that point in my life when I say, do you remember when? And do you remember when it was just Battle Abbey, right? Yeah, I did my first major research project there. Other things that I have pursued since then, I have relied heavily upon the collections here. Uh, in many ways, this is my home court uh, to do research, and I have had a number of people who have helped me along the way, and of course, it's always a mistake to start listing names because you'll inevitably forget somebody, but I have to certainly mention Frances Pollard. She was always so wonderful, so kind, and so wise, and you've got great folks here as well. So it is a real pleasure, it's an honor, and. Uh, I hope this is in some way to sort of express my gratitude because historians, uh, they can't do this job alone. They've got to have partners in crime, right? And archivists are critical uh, to any historian's success and any original research. Now I say that and I should know my wife is an archivist by training from UNC, so I've got to get a good plug in here for archivists because <laughs> I know that she'll, be, uh, that she'll be watching us. So again, thank you uh, so much for, uh, for having me here. On August 20th, in the middle of the night, 
13 veterans of the 3rd North Carolina picked up their rifles, slung on their cartridge boxes, and fled camp. From that point on, there was absolutely no turning back. They had a trek of a few hundred miles that would, they hoped, eventually bring them back to North Carolina. Now, as you know, these North Carolinians were hardly alone in the aftermath of the defeat at Gettysburg. There were likely thousands of men who left Lee's army without permission. So, who were these deserters? And not just these deserters in the third North Carolina. Who were these men who took great risk and fled their commands? To us today, they are relatively a faceless mob. Name your favorite deserter. You can name your favorite general, but you can't name your, famous, your, your favorite deserter, can you, right? We don't know them as individuals. So why is that? Why is there a silence here? And that is something that, as I got deep into this study, I was reminded of the fact that to acknowledge those silences is to also acknowledge how the historical record is created. And to also acknowledge that when historical records, or historical narratives, I should say, that when they're created, it is a reflection of who has power. And why we've not heard from the deserter, why you don't have your favorite deserter, why you, don't, you probably can't even name a single deserter. It is because the sources that we typically have access to are the sources that are written by military officials, government officials, newspaper men, right? That's what we hear. That's what we have access to. And that's largely why, of course, we cannot put a face on these men. I also think that there's a problem in the scholarship. And that problem in the scholarship is that we have stereotyped deserters. We have stereotyped deserters as men who were cowardly, as men who did not have a strong sense of duty. And that perception or I should say that interpretation in the scholarship, it actually reaffirms, I think, a popular belief that the common Civil War soldier was what? Always faced the front, was always brave. Those are the stories we like to hear. Those are the stories we repeat. And the scholarship by professional historians, to some degree, has reaffirmed that. I'll just give you one example, an example from a man who I greatly admire, whose work has deeply influenced me, and that's James McPherson. It's always a risk, of course, to take a shot at a very prestigious and very important historian as Dr. McPherson. But of course, like any historian, his interpretations, I think that they're open to questioning and opening to revision. Dr. McPherson, he described deserters as mostly conscripts, substitutes and bounty men. He did not believe that they were motivated, and if they were motivated at all, it was not by duty, honor, or ideology. In essence, deserters were not political. Now, I have a very, I think, significant reservation about that claim. I think this is something that we're all, I hope, going to have a chance to discuss and debate at the end of my talk. I'm not going to race through my presentation, but I, sim I certainly want to give you all a chance to have a conversation with me about this. Uh, I, of course, I can't identify the person in the audience now, but before my talk, a person said to me, this book that you have just written, you could slap any war on the title, 
It could be World War I, World War II, Vietnam, and the story's the same because the story of a soldier is a universal one. It's a timeless one. I don't believe that. But what I have often heard is that for these men, these men who decided to flee the army, that they left for reasons that you can find, again, throughout time. File that point away, chew on it a little bit, and we'll have a chance, I hope, to be able to discuss it. What I'm deeply concerned about is the stereotyping of deserters, which I've made that point. What I want to do today for you, and what I would like to believe that I accomplished in my book, is that I want you to stand in the shoes, in this case, of a deserter. I want you to stand in the shoes of that deserter, and I want you to take in the world as that deserter took in the world. What he perceived, what he felt, how he made sense of that world, and more importantly, above all else, what options, what options did he imagine? What was in the range of possibilities? It's the key to this talk, and of course, as I said before, it's elemental to what I tried to do in my book. So, to get you all to stand in the shoes of a deserter, I gotta hear their voice, right? And I've already told you that's a challenge. There's just simply not any sources in which we hear, we hear the words of the men who fled. But I got lucky. And in any book, you gotta get lucky, and I did. When I picked up a pamphlet, the pamphlet was entitled Tragedy at Mount Pelier. Tragedy at Mount Pelier described the execution, the largest execution in Lee's army in Northern Virginia. It took place in September of 1863. I picked up that little book. Now, I knew about this execution. I was always fascinated by it. And when I picked it up, I noticed that the author is quoting one of the men condemned and executed at Mount Pelier. There are the words right there. I was shocked, surprised, and of course, very excited. And those words came from a North Carolinian, his name, John Futch, F-U-T-C-H, John Futch. Uh, John Futch, again, there's nothing really that stands out about John Futch. He was from New Hanover County, North Carolina, which is right uh, next to, uh, to Wilmington. He owned no land, owned no land. He didn't own any slaves at all. But he lived within a network of family members, and some of them did own slaves. But he's certainly on the, what you might say, the margins of white Southern society. As I said, nothing really that stood out that was exceptional about him except, well, one thing. He's illiterate. He was illiterate. But I told you, he left a body of correspondence, a body of letters. He obviously, he dictated, right? He dictated his thoughts and his feelings to comrades. Many of these comrades were barely literate themselves. And so again, I ask you to think about the books that I'm sure many of you have read about the common soldier, and those books rely heavily upon those men who are very educated, those men who are of a highly privileged class. Those are the voices that surface when we think about the common soldier. 
The voices of John Futch we rarely hear because, as you all know, those kinds of manuscripts, those letters, and I'd be willing to bet there are many right here at this institution that come from illiterate and poor soldiers. So here I had it. I had the gold mine. I had my path to get into the inner world of John Futch. John Futch did not write, oh, I take that word out, he did not speak about his opposition to the war. He did not spell it out. He did not condemn the Confederate government. He did not in any way um, critique the slaveholding class. He did none of that. But what he did say in letter after letter to my amazement is that he had reservations about the war. He had reservations about the war because he believed that it was a violation of humanity that it was a violation of God's will, that Christians should not be killing each other, shouldn't be shooting at each other. That's the origin, that's the origin of his dissatisfaction. And again, I'll give you one more thing to think about here. That dissatisfaction that he had with the war, his moral reservations about having humans kill other humans, How, or does it, I should say, does that in any way make him political, make him political in his opposition that would ultimately lead to him taking that amazing act of desertion? Right? Again, that's what we're wrestling with here. Seeing the world as fudge solid and trying to understand, understand this great risk that he took when he decided to desert. Is it a deeply political act? A little bit about Futch. John Futch has lost his wife in 1861, shortly after he enlisted. Uh, he only served briefly. I'm not certain why he left the Army in 1861. I don't know if it was because of his wife's death. I'm quite certain, though, that when she passed, that they still had a young child. I don't know the age of the child, but I believe the child was still an infant or a baby. Uh, in 1862, John Futch, he'll remarry a woman named Martha. And he'll also go back into the Confederate Army under the threat of conscription or the draft in 1862. That's when he joined the 3rd North Carolina. He joined with some relatives, including his brother Charlie. Including his brother Charlie. So they go into the uh, 3rd North Carolina, and almost immediately John Futch, uh, he gets sick. And really for the next 10 months in 1862, he shuttles between hospital and camp. He can never really quite get his equilibrium in the Army. And when he is sick, he is receiving letters from his, from his wife, Martha. And I want to make this very clear now about what good Confederate women, and I put quotes around that, what good Confederate women were supposed to do. As you can all probably imagine, their letters were supposed to encourage their men to do their duty, to encourage their men to suffer for the cause, to encourage their men to continue the fight regardless of what might be happening on the home front. I cannot stress enough to you all that what I found in this book time and time again with Union as well as Confederate soldiers, the importance that women played in shaping how men 
understood their sense of duty. Husbands and wives saw themselves as partners as war. And I have already pointed out what Martha Futch was supposed to do when her husband was ill. She, of course, was to write him a letter and say, buck up, get through this and get yourself back into the ranks. Now, Martha, she was barely literate herself. She sent him the following letter. I learned that you have not gone before the medical board, and I want you to go. If you wanted to come home as bad as I do want you to come, you would go before it every day, and I want you to do it and try to get home. Whew, there is a strong-minded woman, right? Huh? Huh? I mean, look at that. Not only is she violating the code of a Confederate woman, but she is violating patriarchy. No man is supposed to receive instructions. That's not even an instruction. That's what? That is an order, is it not? Do this. And what's even interesting about that note is that she clearly had heard through the so-called grapevine, right, from another soldier's maybe letter to a, you know, another woman who lived in the neighborhood. Who knows? But she says, I've heard that you have not gone back to the medical board. These are the kinds of letters that John Fudge received from his wife, Martha. And as you can only imagine, those letters did little to improve his mental state. Uh, these other letters, I'll just give you sort of a synopsis. They describe the financial collapse of the Fudge household. Uh, she also wrote about, and it's odd, it's women who were dressing up in her neighborhood as soldiers and then going to a nearby hospital, a military hospital, and taunting and terrorizing the men who are inside. Now, none of these things are fully ex explained, and, and this is when I want to get back to my point, trying to understand the world as John tried to perceive it. We, of course, see the past with such, just, such incredible clarity. Of course, they didn't. They're in this great maelstrom of confusing information. It's fragmented. It's half-truth. It's not outright gossip and rumor. You can only imagine the difficulties that John had in trying to piece together these broken shards that are coming from his wife. Oh, hey. they're on the verge of starvation. Oh, wait, there's a sickness that's run through the community. Oh, God, and there are women who are terrorizing Soldiers in a hospital. How does one make sense of that? We'll never know, but we do know this, that it absolutely had to lead this great confusion for John, right? who was also feeling that sense of duty that as a man, that his ultimate responsibility was to provide and to care for his household. He was, John was particularly outraged to learn that somebody had gone to their property and had engaged in some kind of thievery. He doesn't spell it out. But he gives Martha some direct instructions on what to do. And again, the instructions, I believe, are shocking. He wrote to her. Oh, he didn't write. He said this to another soldier who wrote it down. Damn that old rascal. And you ought to take your gun, go there, and shoot him for all he has been doing them tricks. Now, times clearly difficult for the Futch household in New Hanover County, but the situation for John was not much better. He was uh, 
barely getting by in the ranks because of his illness. Uh, and of course, the surgeons and the, uh, uh, were not refusing to give him a pass to send him back home. In fact, he wrote to, or spoke to his wife and said that it, and this is the spring of 1863, that it looks like starvation time here. Now, these hardships that John endured and how he reacted to them was somewhat unusual. I found time and time again that it was the hardships in the ranks that forged a strong sense of, uh, of community and connection amongst fellow soldiers. And these connections, they were extraordinarily strong. And the glue that held it together was emotion. I always thought that Civil War soldiers, when they uh, endured these great trials, that they just basically kept it all within. And they weren't willing to confess to those at home, and especially to their comrades. Futch is just one of many examples that that's just simply not the case at all. I want to remind you that he, in fact, is speaking to another man. He is giving his innermost thoughts to another man. There's an outstanding book that's just released by Jim Brumall. Jim Brumall called Private Confederacies. It's outstanding. It's outstanding. And it, in fact, explores in a very deep and I think in a very, um, very powerful and compelling way the emotional life of Civil War soldiers. And that bond, that emotional bond through shared suffering, I'll give you just a quick example. Charles Bowen, a Union soldier, 12th U.S. Regulars, after the Battle of Fredericksburg, as you all know, horrific Union defeat, and he participated in that failed assault against Maurice Heights. After the battle, he was on the verge, on the verge of deserting. And one day he looked into his camp and he saw a man, a man from Minnesota, a man from Minnesota who had left his wife with nine children, nine children, and that this poor man, like John Fudge, could not read or write. And he saw this man that he had taken on extra work, doing some laundry and doing some sewing, and to take on that extra work to send a little bit of money back to his wife. And when Bowen looked at this, and when he saw this great sacrifice, when he saw what this man was enduring, it filled him with this strong, overriding connection to that man and to his unit, and to the cause itself. John Futch never, ever felt that. When he was in the military hospital, he did not long to get back to camp and to connect with his comrades. Combat. Combat, as you well know, also could bring men together, but not for John Futch. For John Futch, his first major battle was Chancellorsville in May of 1863. He spoke to a comrade after that battle, and that letter, of course, conveyed to his wife. And in that letter, John Fudge said that he was quite certain that everyone was going to be killed and no one would be left to tell the story. He then told that comrade that another soldier in the unit had, he didn't use this word, had defecated in his pants because he was so scared. When you think of Chancellorsville and you think of Lee's Army in Northern Virginia, you think of its greatest triumph of the war. You think of men who have supreme confidence in their general. And that confidence, of course, led them to believe that they were what? They were incomparable, right? They're not going to be defeated. But John Fudge never felt any of that. And I'm, again, not trying to suggest to you 
that those men who felt that confidence and that faith in R.E. Lee, that that somehow was not characteristic of the army. It most certainly was. But do you, again, go back to the silences. Go back to the stories that we have heard. Go back to the stories that we like to tell. It's not the story of John Futch. It's not the story of a man in the wake of a great Confederate victory writes or speaks about a comrade defecating in his pants. An important point about combat and Civil War soldiers, it is a hot topic, it always has been and always will. Uh, it's, uh, it's a topic in which we can get into the inner world of these men, right? and how they are coming to terms with this awful violence that they had to confront and that they also inflicted. And now many historians say that, well, Civil War soldiers, they were probably suffering from some form of PTSD. There's no doubt about that. I don't really think that's a great revelation. Certainly there was some form of trauma. God, men and women can't go through that without being changed in some way. Right? I also think that it is a little facile to say that these men were victors over combat. We, we have this silly binary, right? Either victors, right, or victims. I say neither. And what I try to do in this book and what I'm doing with John Futch right now is I want you to see how men could feel about, in this case, combat, could feel very differently about that at, their, at different times of the war. In other words, what I'm trying to say is, men had many faces. Remember I said to you, I don't want to stereotype a man as courageous, dutiful, or cowardly. Absolutely not. They could be all of those things. It just depended on what was happening in that moment. And the very best word, to describe, I think, Civil War soldiers' attitude toward combat is an ambivalence. On the one hand, they drew immense satisfaction and, and believed that they were had proven themselves as men to go through that fiery ordeal. But on the other hand, they would write in the same letter, I don't want to go back there. I don't want to endure that again. The best example is from Charles Biddlecombe, a New York soldier, fantastic book, and a great title. Ready? Here we go. If you have pen and paper, I don't see pen and paper out there. I'll, I'll speak slowly. I tell my students this all the time. When I say a book title, I said, just appease me. Just move your hand on your paper, right? And I hope that you'll read it at some point. It's a great title. I'm going to say it slowly. No Freedom Shrieker. Wonderful set of letters. No Freedom Shrieker. Charles Biddlecombe, he almost deserted before the Overland campaign. He survived it. After that campaign, he wrote to his wife, and he said that he had his uniform, and when he looked at his uniform, he wanted to send it back to her in their New York home. He wanted her to stuff it, put it in his office, and then he said after the war, if he ever had a bad day on the farm, he'd look at that uniform and think, you know what? It's not so bad here, right? <laughs> Two weeks later, he gets issued a new sack coat. Two weeks later. He wrote his wife and said, that there wasn't a piece of clothing that he had ever prized more in his life than the coat he was wearing. Because that coat had the soil stains from the wilderness, from Spotsylvania, from North Anna, from Cold Harbor. That coat had the blood stains of his comrades. That coat is an artifact. It became sacred in his mind, right? A holy grail of sorts. Do you see, just in that short period of time, within three weeks, you can 
get the contradictions and the tensions that resided in these men. And I can't stress that enough, the contradictions and the tensions. Futso had none of that. On the eve of the Gettysburg campaign, he, of course, feared that any excursion into the North would take him farther away from his wife and his family. He became absolutely fatalistic. And just a few days before they crossed the Potomac, he spoke to his comrade and said, I hope that I will get home sometime before I die. July 2nd, evening of July 2nd, John and Charlie Futch are part of the attack. Of course, I'd like to believe that all of you have been to Gettysburg. If not, we welcome you. Adams County, of course, uh, welcomes you as well to come on up and see the battlefield. You will go to Culp's Hill, and you'll see where John and Charlie participated in that evening attack, that evening attack in which they were both on the ground loading their weapons, right? And you know the rocky terrain there, right? And as they're loading their weapons, a bullet struck Charlie in the head. When he turned to look at John, and you can only imagine that blood was streaming down Charlie's face. When he looked at John, his mouth moved, but no words came out. And John, of course, knew in that instant that his brother was mortally wounded. John carried Charlie behind the lines, stayed by his side throughout that evening, and until July 3rd, when Charlie finally passed. You can only imagine the devastation that John felt knowing, of course, that he would bury his brother on Pennsylvania soil, never to see him again. Charlie was killed at Gettysburg, Pennsylvania. Poor feller. He got killed a long ways from home. I was very sorry that I couldn't get a coffin to bury him, but I buried him the best I could. It was something that I never expected to have to do, but we don't know what we will do till we get in war. I believe, he concluded, he is happy, and no doubt, far better off than any of us. John did his best to try to bring his family and his friends by Charlie's side during his last moments of life. In other words, by his bedside. You all, I hope, have read Drew Gilpin Faust outstanding book, This Republic of Suffering, in which she writes about the culture of death. One might expect that that's just among, again, the privileged classes, but we see those ideas and how they permeated even the thinking of John Futch. When I read those letters, I could never imagine giving those kinds of details to a loved one. Uh, I would probably have erased them from the record. I certainly wouldn't want to upset right, those people who could not have been with my loved one at that last hour. But that's not how they did it back in the day, right? Instead, John Fudge did everything he could to bring, to transport his family to those rocky slopes of Culp's Hill so that they could feel and that they could see what he saw before Charlie departed this world. When the Army of Northern Virginia returned to Virginia, John composed, I shouldn't say composed, spoke five letters from July 19th to August the 6th. In each one of these letters, he made it clear that he needed to escape the army for his family's survival as well as for his own sanity. He was getting few rations that late summer of 1863. There was a logistical breakdown in the Army of Northern Virginia. A proof of his suffering, proof, of, I think, of his mistreatment 
were his feet. He had no shoes. And his feet, as he spoke again to a comrade, he informed his comrade that they were covered, covered with calluses and blisters. So in just a moment here, we're going to read, I'm going to read one of John's letters. And um, as you'll discover, the syntax in this letter is pretty rough going. There's not a lot of respect for grammar or for punctuation, any of that stuff. And so it's a little rough as I read it, but you have all imagined that I should be well prepared to read this kind of letter. I've been grading undergraduate papers for more than a decade now. Lots of you see I'm playing to my audience here, right? I don't see any college kids in here, so I think, I think I'm safe. All right, so if we could pull that letter up, please, and then you can read along with me. I have the pleasure of writing you a few lines, which will inform you that I am not well at this time. I have a bad cold, and I'm wearied out of marching. But we are stopped at this time, but we don't know how long we will stay there. There is some talk of going back in Maryland, but I am in hopes that the war will end, for I am tired of Maryland. I hope that we will not go back there. We marched through PVS, Pennsylvania. We had a hard fight there. We lost all of our boys nearly there. Charlie got killed, he suffered a great deal from his wound. He lived a night and a day after he was wounded. We've seen hard times there, but we got enough to eat there, but we don't now. As to myself, I get enough, for I don't want nothing to eat hardly, for I'm almost sick all the time and half crazy. What an admission. Many of you have read countless Civil War letters, and I'm pretty confident that you have never, ever come across an admission like that. I never wanted to come home so bad in my life, but it is so that I can't come at this time. But if we come down south, I will try to come anyhow, for I want to come home so bad that I am homesick. I want you to keep Charlie's pistol, and if I ever get it back, I will keep it. Thomas and Robert Ramsey both got wounded, and they was left with the Yankees. But I hope that we will be lifted to come home without a wound, for I have seen so many wounded and died. As you all know, men in Civil War armies they're supposed to master their emotions, no? Were they not supposed to be able to come through this ordeal, buck up, persevere, and move forward? But I have seen so many wounded and died. I stayed with Charlie until he died. He never spoke after he was wounded until he died. I never was hurt so in my life. I'd rather that it had been myself, and then he abruptly ends, clearly that called to duty or something, right? A roll call, who knows? My opportunity is of writing, I will close, so nothing more, only I still remain your kind and affectionate husband. Note the next part of this letter. Clearly he's speaking to somebody else, John did, right? Dear mother, I want to let you know that I had not forgotten you yet, now, never will, as long as I live. I have wrote to you two or three times and never have got any answer. I want to see you the worst in the world and talk with you. I will write to you before long and write you a long letter. Don't forget to write to me, for it is all the satisfaction I see is to hear from you all. So I will close for the want of something to write, so nothing more, and I remain your kind son, John Futch. And John Futch's letters that followed, thank you for the, uh, in the letters that followed, uh, John prepared his wife 
for his uh, act of desertion. Uh, he encouraged his wife to go and get what we would call welfare. It was county relief that was given to soldiers, soldiers' wives, I should say, right? So he's plotting this. This isn't just waking up one morning deciding, let's get out of this mess, let's head back to Carolina. No, it's clear. There was some deep thinking that went behind this. That plotting included his wife to make sure that she would get the rations from the county because, of course, as soon as he deserted, she would no longer be eligible for that. He also informed his wife that the officers in the 3rd North Carolina were opening up the letters of the enlisted men and reading them to try to figure out their intentions. On the day that he deserted, on August the 20th, he went, sent one final note to his wife. That final note said, you can expect me home soon. Left on August the 20th, uh, they made their way south, got all the way down in, oh, I've got to get the dates right here, in, in less than four days, they made it more than 50 miles. They got to the James River to not far from Scottsville, Virginia, so south of Charlottesville, right? They got to the river, I believe, in the middle of the night. They were intercepted by a Confederate patrol. Uh, it's hard to know what happened next, except in an attempt to try to surrender, possibly, a gun battle erupted. And the officer of the arresting party, a man named Richard Mallett, was shot in the chest, killed. One of Fetch's comrades was killed. Another man possibly escaped and a third man was seriously wounded. So you really have 10 soldiers now. They're captured, they're put on trains, they are sent to Castle Thunder, which of course is right here in Richmond. I think it's near where Bottoms Up Pizza is located today. I think I'm right about that. Is there still Bottoms Up Pizza? Is that still here? Yeah. So uh, Castle Thunder, as you all know, that was a place for Confederate political prisoners. They were there for a week, and during that week, we really don't know what transpired. All we have are some newspaper reports, and what's interesting is that the reporters made it very clear that they had no interactions with the men at all. At the end of that week, these men, again, shackled together. They were put, or I should say, escorted to the train station. One of the Richmond uh, reporters saw these men. He said that these men, uh, by their appearances alone, he did not, of course, speak to them, and more importantly, he did not identify them by name. By appearances uh, alone, he said that he knew that they had craven hearts and that they were not at all remorseful for the act that they had committed. He had not spoken to them. Put on the trains and, of course, back to the Army of Northern Virginia, back to Johnson's division. Johnson's division is camped around Montpelier. At Montpelier, they are, uh, again, escorted to a tent that was heavily guarded. And it's the Friday night before their execution took place on a Saturday. And... And the execution, so be, execution takes place on September the 5th. September the 4th, or that night, uh, Reverend Armstrong, he was an Episcopal minister or priest, he spoke to uh, Futch and his comrades. He informed them of the verdict. The verdict, of course, was that they were to be executed before a firing squad, the a firing squad the following day. Once again, they were allowed no communication with anyone, including their comrades. And a newspaper reporter, somehow, I don't know how this occurred, was able to get some insights into what had transpired between Armstrong and those men. He wrote that those men, 
Fuch and his comrades, that these men for the first time found Jesus Christ. They accepted Christ as their Savior. Uh, and again, that's a curious conclusion because as you know from what I have told you, uh, John Fletch was a Christian. He had accepted Christ as the Savior. In one of his letters, he sketched a hand pointing and a finger pointing to the heavens. The next day, that Saturday, Johnson's division was formed up in a three-sided square. They stood in that formation throughout much of that afternoon, waiting in silence. You can only imagine the anxiety that these men felt. These men, of course, they knew exactly what was going to happen. They were ordered to that spot, interestingly enough, without muskets. Without muskets. That came from above. That came from Johnson. Johnson was certainly concerned about how the men would respond to this. Not allowed to have muskets. And so as they stood there that afternoon, suddenly the sounds of the dead march were heard. Again, they could see nothing. They could only hear that muffled drum cadence. And then the ranks parted, and the condemned appeared. They were likely marched around that entire hollow square so that Johnson's veterans could see them. Then marched to stakes. Ten stakes. Two soldiers escorted each deserter to one of those stakes. Then Reverend Armstrong came, had some final words which eat with each soldier. Then the men were forced to kneel on the ground, hands tied to the stakes, blindfold, blindfolded, and then the last act, the guards took the caps of these men and pulled it over their eyes. The men walked away. And during that silence, a few of the condemned yelled out, have mercy on me. One man cried out for his mother. Another yelled out, save me. One of those men, John Futch, will never know. We'll never know what was going through John's mind those final moments. Was he thinking about his wife, Martha? About the child he would never see again? Was he thinking about Charlie? Charlie dying in his arms. The execution companies then were moved forward. Each company had 10 men, five with loaded weapons, five with blanks. They stood 13 feet away from the condemned. At the very center of that formation was General Johnson. He had a Confederate flag as well. And the symbolic importance of this formation, of course, was not lost on the men. The supreme authority, that's not from above here, it is the Confederate national government and General Edward Johnson. The command that these men had heard time and time again on the battlefield Men, I might add, at Gettysburg endured, endured six hours of continuous fighting on Culp's Hill on July the 3rd. There is not a place on the Gettysburg battlefield in which soldiers endured such a protracted amount of time of constant fighting. 
And now they hear that command, that command of ready, aim, fire. And when the volleys were unleashed and the smoke cleared, two of the condemned were still living. Reserve companies were rushed up, unleashed volleys, and in essence finished the job. But of course, this gruesome ritual was not over because we know that this ritual was what? It's for the living. And as a final reminder as to what awaited a man who tested Confederate authority and who deserted, Johnson's division was marched by the corpses at slow time. Did the execution have its desired impact? Did it keep men from deserting? That is something that we, of course, should discuss and debate. Certainly within the 3rd North Carolina, uh, men continued to desert after this incident. What's intriguing to me is that some of the soldiers believed that what happened on the James River when Richard Mallett was shot and killed, many of the men believed that that was a military action. But... What we can never record, what we will never know is simply this. And I want you again, remember, put yourself in the shoes of a soldier. I want you to imagine that you have just witnessed those 10 men getting gunned down. I want you to remind yourself that that image, that that memory is always there. And so while one might say desertion, or I should say the execution of deserters, was rare. That's what people tell me all the time. It's rare. It hardly ever happened. Pete, why do you write so much about it? I write so much about it because I know that the memory and the image of that, it lodged in their minds. Because just maybe, just maybe they'd have the bad luck that they'd get caught and they'd be, what, made an example of. If you want another comparison of this, and I think it is an apt one. How many times, how many times did a slave child have to see his mother or his father whipped to know that the system of slavery, system of slavery, and its very backbone is what? It's the whip. It's force. It's coercion. Now listen, we can get off the tracks here during the discussion period, and I'm happy to do it because it's an important conversation about the nature of slavery. I'm not suggesting to you that every slave owner used brute force day in and day out. I am not suggesting that to you. But what I am saying to you is that just like the slave child, any Civil War soldier knew ultimately that army had the power to use brute force to keep the ranks together. They know it's there. Right? It's part of their world. What happened after Futch's death was a campaign that was initiated by Richmond Papers and then carried on in North Carolina and elsewhere in which these men, they were demonized. They were seen as common criminals. The first step don't give them names, right? Don't give them names. Second step, make it appear that they are not Christians at heart. And then the third step is to take away all the context. During the question and answer period, we're going to take a look at one of the newspaper clippings from the Richmond paper. But I'll say this to you now. If you were reading about this execution today, right? Some act of military justice. I suspect 
that all of you would expect that the newspaper would give context, right? Why did this happen? But in these newspaper accounts, again, no names. You know nothing of their background. You know nothing of the fact that most of these men, they were in fact good, solid soldiers and had good combat records and had fought like Futch had at Chancellorsville. There's no mention of that. There's no mention of the fact that John Futch had lost his brother who died in his arms at Culp's Hill. There's no mention of that. There's no mention of the fact that Lee's army had suffered a devastating defeat. That's ignored. There's no mention of the fact that Lee's army was enduring horrific logistical breakdown, that the men were not getting adequate food or clothing. And there is no mention of the fact that John Futch's wife, as well as many women of the non-slaveholding class, were suffering dearly without their husband's presence, as well as their husband's income, right? The households are falling apart. None of that is there. None of it. Instead, you have a portrait of men in which they are seen as criminals who have forever, forever dishonored their families' names. <coughs> Why did John Fudge desert? And many of you are going to say, and I would agree with you, that he desert, deserted to save his own skin. He's clear about this before Gettysburg. He's worried about the campaign, knew that a battle was looming, knowing that, in fact, he would likely not make it out of that battle. He wanted to save his own skin. I do not dispute that whatsoever. But there is a deeper condemnation that John Fudge offered in his words to his comrades. And that deeper condemnation was that Christians, as I mentioned before, should not have to live this way. They should not be warring against each other. Families should not be separated. There are practical issues that weighed heavily on John Futch. They were always there, but why after Gettysburg? Well, it's in part the defeat but not so much because John Futch didn't order his world around great campaigns or General Robert E. Lee, did he? No, John Futch ordered his world around day-to-day -day issues of survival, but they took on this radicalization, and they became radical when the moment allowed him to be radical and his comrades, when Lee's army was, at least from his perspective, unraveling. When John Fudge deserted, he showed that he had a different version of what it meant to be a Southern man. His version of what it meant to be a Southern man is that his sense of responsibility and his sense of duty and his honor depended upon him going home and caring for his loved ones. He obviously was not alone in that belief. And I think we can all agree, though, that the Confederate government recognized, understood that they had to condemn and punish that version of manhood or they would not survive as a nation. Thank you.
so we have uh, plenty of time for comments and, and questions, and I am as uh, eager again to take any kind of comments you have. Uh, it doesn't have to necessarily be a question. If you have a disagreement, or more importantly, if you have something you want to agree with me, I'd love to hear that as well, too. <laughs> agree all you want. Uh, yeah, I'm sorry, I can't see very well, so yeah. While attending a battleground tour in northeastern Carolina a couple of years ago, there was, there was a conversation in the group led by a guide with the tour service telling us about local farmers who were soldiers conscripted into the Confederate service. And because conditions were so harsh and they had to secure food for their families, they had friends in the coastal section of Carolina where the Union was dominant. Yeah, right, right, right. In that case, they, uh, they came in contact with their friends on the coast. Right. They encouraged them to sign up with the Union, and the Union paid them a stipend for signing up. They were involved in a battle later on in Mary's Creek, I think it was, and Pickett and the group Confederates captured them. And gave them the noose as well, right? They hung them. They couldn't find enough rope to hang them oh. in the courtyard there, so they went to the Navy to secure adequate amounts of rope right. to do so. Right. But the story is that after these guys were executed, I think a couple of dozen of them, the war was over, and uh, President Grant charged Pickett with war crimes. And Pickett yeah. escaped to Canada. Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure those war crimes were ever official. I, I'd have to look that up. I, that's the only part of the story I'm not, not quite certain of. But the, the contours of what you said, I think, are, are spot on. I'll just connect this to Futch. Did Futch imagine himself going back to New Hanover County and maybe, of course, going to the other side, flipping, so to speak, uh, to use mafia terms? And uh, I, I don't think that that was probably on his agenda. It's hard to know. But again, let's sort of bring it back again. What I intended to do for you today is to put you in his shoes and to again imagine this. Get back to my house in North Carolina and what? Who knows? Because it's not like he can sit on his porch on his veranda, right, and you know, sip a drink every evening. The home guard's gonna come after him. Someone's gonna come after him. If you deserted, you're gonna have to live like a fugitive. And so it's hard to know what he intended to do. It's hard to imagine that he had any inclination to join the Union side, not because he despised the Yankees. He, he could very well have. Probably did after they killed his brother. I assume he didn't have any fond feelings for him. But the point for us is this. When people say, and I have a, a, a lively dispute with some of my peers about desertion, most men didn't desert. Thus, most men in the Confederate Army, particularly Lee's Army, had this strong devotion to the cause. And I think to a degree that's true. However, by simply staying in the ranks doesn't mean that you've given yourself body and soul to the cause. You're forced to be there. And, and, and what's the alternative? There's a North Carolina guy named Kiever I write about. Spring of 65, he's in Petersburg. He's going back and forth, back and forth. He doesn't know what to do. He is by no means a Confederate patriot. He has no great admiration for Lee. He doesn't think Lee's going to pull a rabbit out of the hat and save everything. He's trying to get through the day. And the reason why he sticks it out as long as he did, because what did he remember? 
seeing a man executed in the fall of, uh, of 1864. He always brought that back to his wife. And he also said, and if I return and I get home and I make it, what am I going to do? Right? Got to live out in the woods like an outlaw? And he said, they'll come after me. So, you know, this idea of nationalism and loyalty and morale, I think all those categories, they often allow us, enable us to just say the men believed blank. They didn't. They believed this at some point. Often their behavior was in contradiction to that. And there's just a story that line there that I think is far more complex because we have focused so heavily on soldier ideas and soldier ideology that we've missed. We've missed the f we've missed how ideas and actions change over the flow of time. Yeah, go ahead. Thank you very much for your presentation today. It's opened a lot of thoughts. Um, did this same type of uh, process go on with any of the officer corps in, in Southern armies? Do you, do you find any evidence of officers saying, I gotta go home? Well, there certainly is some instances of that. It's not as prevalent. Um, I think one reason why is that officers were able to have uh, more freedom in being able to make those important uh, connections, I mean, physical connections with the home front, so an officer on both sides, Union and Confederate, could return to uh, either for recruiting or to maybe get supplies for the regiment. I mean, the great irony in the Confederate Army, who has really the greatest mobility, and again, listen to this carefully, God knows I don't want to get in trouble for this, is slaves. And slave, look, they're slaves. Like, yep, that, I'm telling you, they are slaves, right? But within that system, the slaves had a degree of freedom that white men didn't have in the army. And how that was utilized by white men, by officers, that slave could go back home, right? Deliver important information, deliver goods as well. I'm telling you, it's a coercive system. I'm not denying that. I'm simply saying is that you can only imagine, especially for an enslaved person and the the resentment and fear that that slave often felt from poor white guys who didn't have slaves, right? And like, oh, that guy's can go back to our home, back to our community, and we're stuck here? Like, you can only imagine the grumbling that took place. And I found some examples of that. A guy in the Trans-Mississippi who just had absolute hatred for the so-called camp servants or the camp slaves because they associated with the officers. They often, of course, got certain privileges that the, the white men the white soldiers uh, in the ranks didn't get. So I didn't answer your question directly, certainly not as much as someone like John, John Fletch. Yep. Did either um, country have any policy that would allow someone to be exempt from military service oh, yeah. for based on conscience or some other? Oh. Reason. Yeah, so uh, I don't know of anything official on either side. I can give you one example, and as we all know, Stonewall Jackson, at least from my reading of Stonewall Jackson, wasn't a guy who had a, a great, it was, he didn't have a robust sense of humor. I think we can all agree about that, right? And, uh, and Jackson wrote Jefferson Davis um, in the spring of 62, and he said that there were some Mennonites in the uh, Shenandoah Valley who, were, of course, were conscientious objectors, and they didn't want to fight. And you now here's sort of uh, Stonewall Jackson's sense of humor. He said, we can force them to carry muskets, but that doesn't mean they're going to shoot straight, right? <laughs> and so he said, you know what, let's use them as teamsters. And I don't know if that's ultimately what happened or not. So. Yeah, if I, one other, I mean, that uh, the uh, Montpelier thing was just one incident, and I'm sure there are other executions, right. but there were a lot that weren't. That's right. Uh, Percentage-wise, how, how um, much was that? Was it 
generally, or did no, all? No, no. I mean, again, I don't really have the numbers, but I can't even imagine. We're talking about what less than one percent. I mean, it's it's just a small number. But you, these grand displays, right? And these are grand displays where, for example, the Army of the Potomac in the fall of 1863, the entire Fifth Corps. More than 20,000 men witnessed the execution of four soldiers who were, in essence, bounty jumpers. Army of Tennessee had, I don't remember how many, maybe two to three divisions, and what was one of the, it was just, a, it was an execution that was botched. They, uh, they had more than, I think they had 15 soldiers they were going to shoot, and the firing squads, instead of a verbal command, they looked at the officer in charge, and as soon as the officer dropped a handkerchief, they were to fire. Well, as you can only imagine, they're looking, and then when the handkerchief is dropped, then they shoot, and they shot all over the place. It's just utterly, it's horrific, it's gruesome, right? I mean, I think, you know, more than half of the men were still alive, one guy screaming out, begging to be killed. It's just awful stuff. And, you know, that side of the war is certainly a part of the war that we have confronted and we have seen it in other books, but I think it probably has a more of a, a stronger presence in my book because I continued to see how these men's choices were constrained, right? And we are so eager as we look at the past now, and it's not just Civil War soldiers, it's all groups. I, t I teach a class right now on slavery, and I said, you know, we want every slave to resist uh, we want every slave to be like a Nat Turner, but that's not how the system functions, and that's not history. Uh, it, and, and we want history to reaffirm, often I would say, um, political issues of the day, right? Uh, and we want to draw strength from the past for whatever political fights or interests or whatever you might have today. And I, I absolutely understand where that comes from. But of course, as a historian uh, and as a teacher, I find that more than problematic, uh, especially of late, I think that it's so important to take people on their own terms. Uh, I don't think this moral, you know, wagging your finger at people of the past to, to, to proclaim our moral superiority over them, I don't think how that gets us a deeper understanding. It doesn't make us more analytical in how we think about the past and how we should think about today. So, you know, I, I, I've seen more and more of that, and it is certainly troubling to me. Uh, and I think that it's just, it's so valuable to try to try to take people on their own terms, recognizing that slavery was an absolute moral evil. That's undeniable. Uh, and, and recognizing that it's important, just as with Civil War armies. But these are brutal places, right? And many of the men who came out of that, they came out of it with very conflicted feelings. They drew, I mean, I just think about my own father. Korea did him no favors, period. And at the same time, my dad, I mean, he was, God, he must have been in his 60s in the first Iraq war, and he was very serious about trying to find a way to help out the nation and get back into the military. He hated his time in Korea, right? He's conflicted. That's what we got to bring back to the past. Everything, I right? Get that ambiguity, get that contradiction. We should get away with Civil War soldiers, and you know what, the list goes on. That's tough. Right? That's, what, that's what makes history challenging and tough, is that when we try to bring in those tensions and those contradictions. So Dr. Carmichael will be in the lobby to answer more of your questions. In the meantime, let's give yeah, him one more you. round of applause. Thank you so much. Thank you. Yep.